This is so hard this to like so summarize. Hard. Like this, Pride and Prejudice is the same no matter what. Lizzie Bennet Diaries. Fire Island on Hulu. I'll be real with you. I never saw Bridget Jones Diaries. Are you freaking kidding me? Good morning, internet. Welcome to Literary Connections. Topping today's headlines, how can friends stay in touch when they live across the world? I'm Melissa Hansen, bringing you all the literary news that's fit to podcast. And I'm James Earl, and uh, I might be wrong about everything, but I'm in San Francisco today. Showing that not all is lost for our humble protagonist of James. <laughs> and this month, what are we reading, James? We're reading Debating Darcy by Sayantani Dasgupta. Thank you, James. Can you tell my qualifications for this podcast today? I believe that the reason you're talking like this is that you've done debate before. It's not debate. It is high school forensics, also known as speech team. I was under the impression that when you did high school forensics, you just talked really quickly and you tried to do the quote spread. I did that as well. That event was called impromptu speaking. I also did radio. I learned a lot about speaking competitions. Forensics competitions! I learned a lot about forensics competitions from this book. I did not know there was a radio competition. Yes, forensics is not just for CSI anymore. Um, I'll stop talking like this. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, they didn't talk about my two events in this book, which I was kind of offended by. Impromptu speaking and radio speaking. What and the hell? These are considered CSI? I thought that CSI was like a show on... No, they're all considered <laughs> forensics, which is something that also happens in CSI. Forensics has two meetings. <laughs> every day's um, a school day. Yeah. Every day's a school day. Every day's a school day. But yeah, I guess we have to start with a summary and then we can go into what we thought about the book. Yeah. Uh, I think it's your turn, so I'll put a minute on the clock. Okay. For this month, we looked at two different Pride and Prejudice adaptations. We watched Fire Island on Hulu, which was a queer Asian reading of Pride and Prejudice. And then we also read Debating Darcy, which was about a Desi Lizzie Bennett in forensics, my old hobby when I was in high school, and then her debating with a fellow student version of Darcy at the high school level. Um, and so both of them had all of your standard plot lines from Pride and Prejudice, whether it's enemies to lovers, all of Lizzie's family slash friends being hot messes, as well as adorable Jane Bingley couples on the side, and a downfall of Lydia to a certain extent, um, although there were some twists. Yeah, they were both interesting, clever, and can't wait to talk about them. With five seconds to spare. To be fair, I mostly hand wave the plot because it's the same as Private Jones. Yeah. Or Bridget Jones's Diary, or yes. Fire Island. Yes, or Fire Island. James, were you able to watch Fire Island for this podcast? I was. In fact, we watched it together last night. <laughs> <laughs> What's the summary of Fire Island? It's basically Pride and Prejudice, as we said, which is... Okay, Pride and Prejudice is just a nice person named Lizzie Bennett, who... This is so hard to, like, so summarize. Hard. Like, cause it's, Pride and Prejudice is the same no matter what. Yes, Pride and Prejudice is the same no matter what. So it's a story of a person who the audience is sympathetic with, who misunderstands a curmudgeon -y romantic interest. Ultimately, they end up together. And in all the iterations, there is a friend who is too kind for this world, who falls in love with another friend who is too kind for this world. And that's mm. very nice. Yeah. So the other thing to note is that I am in San Francisco. So this is one of the rare Literary Connections episodes where we are in the same place. Mm -hmm. Last time we were in Milan, this time you've come to my shore. Mm -hmm. 
we're doing Debating Darcy today, and first, why is Jane Austen so popular these days? And not just Jane Austen, but like the whole Regency England... Like, oh, like Bridgerton? Bridgerton. I mean, last time it was late 1800s, but there's still this, like, obsession with Regency England, Bridgerton, Jane Austen. There's Persuasion is on Netflix right now. It's, like, the number one movie on Netflix right now. We got Debating Darcy. We've got Fire Island. What's up with this? That is a really good question. What is really great about Jane Austen, I mean, all comedies of manners, mm-hmm. especially, I would say, in, like, today's society, Jane was so aware of power dynamics. So much of what influences Pride and Prejudice is this socioeconomic and gender differential between Darcy and all of Lizzie Bennet and her family. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that's always like ripe in today's society. In Clueless, it was like popular kids versus like the stoner mm-hmm. kids. Or as we talk about power and privilege in high schools, um, especially in like really gendered events such as a debate, she has a universal critical eye towards these things. Mm. And that is also true of Fire Island. It was also true, well, obviously it's um, Pride and Prejudice. And it's also true of Bridgerton, which has class distinctions at at its center and like marriage, like meaningful unions between upper class lower class although like everybody's generally upper class like there's nobody that's like poor right but i mean it is this idea of like you are able to marry your way out of like your lowest class mm-hmm. of if you are the stoner tie in clueless or in bridgerton it's like a very intentional thing like the king married a black woman and so like mm-hmm. now we have equality and I'm like do you is that how this works <laughs> that's that easy in fire island it's very much censored on the gay Asian American experience. They make a joke at the beginning, like no fats, no femmes, no Asians. Right, which they're invisible. They're invisible and how hard that makes it to date, especially for the precious cinnamon roll of Bo and Yang. <laughs> Don't worry, he gets his bingley. This one, speaking a lot to the, like the Desi Indian American experience around colorism, mm-hmm. where you have a darker skinned Indian American protagonist in Leela, and then she falls for someone who's half Pakistani and half white. Mm-hmm. One thing that I will say about like, the translations to Jane Austen, though, that are like modern, I appreciated in Fire Island and in Bridget Jones's Diary, too. It's not a one-to-one. The one thing I struggled with with debating Darcy is in the attempt to make it a one-to-one, sometimes it felt like very <laughs> heavy-handed. <laughs> like she was pulling literal quotes from the books yeah. pretty directly, except then she pulled a nightly quote from Emma at the very end. And mm-hmm. I was like, this is clearly Mr. Knightley. We know the difference between Mr. Knightley and Mr. Darcy. Come on. Yeah, I'm going to do a sympathetic reading of Debating Darcy and say that all that's on purpose. Oh, no, it's absolutely on purpose. This is the thing that I was really impressed by with Debating Darcy, is that it's a total one-to-one mapping of the novel onto Pride and Prejudice. But part of the major themes that she's investigating in this book is uh, speaking with somebody else's voice. So, like, that's something that the the Darcy character criticizes Leela for is doing performing something that is not in her own voice that she didn't do the writing of and so it's like unoriginal whatever and this book is unoriginal like it's not and whenever Leela quotes from Pride and Prejudice or like pulls a quote from Pride and Prejudice she's also misquoting it she quotes early on in the novel that line about getting lost in a good book but in Pride and Prejudice that quote is said by somebody that doesn't actually read and so it's like a complete misunderstanding of somebody else's words like she's parroting somebody else's words but doing it 
wrong. And mm. that's like a major theme of this book is the consequences of parroting somebody else's lines. And it's not until the end that it completely breaks away from the Pride and Prejudice narrative where she does her original speech in front of everybody and this is like completely divergent from the plot of Pride and Prejudice. And it's at that point that she quotes from a different Jane Austen novel, <laughs> which I think is really clever. Um, just, you know, it's original oratory or OO if oh, you're yeah, a competitor. Mm. As someone who did speech slash forensics for four years of high school, this book was like a little too real for me. I had to put it down several times because I had literal firsthand embarrassment. Just like flashbacks to me, like the first chapter I had to put down immediately because I just had a vision of myself in a skirt suit, wearing my mother's flats, um, wearing nylons. This was a thing back when I was in high school is you had to wear nylons and doing all these speech things on a bus at like seven in the morning and just all of us like being complete self-important assholes <laughs> and like like all the things about quippery and like judging each other's quippery and like literally my friend who was a co-captain with me on speech team she taught me how to use sarcasm and she would rate me as i like oh. learned how to be better at sarcasm and so so much of who i was in high school was based on doing this sort of learning quippery and also singing all these songs on a bus with a bunch of other theatrical kids that's really interesting, just the, the different experiences that we had reading this. Like, yours is firsthand. You're not experiencing their embarrassment. You, like, zone out, go back into your own stock of memories, and come out embarrassed for yourself. Whereas mine is, I've taught Model UN, and so I've seen the, like, 12-year-olds dressed up in suits trying to pretend like they're politicians doing mm -hmm. things. And for me, that's just adorable. So I can watch this and be like, oh, this is so fun. Oh, no, it reminds me just of where I had like a live journal and I would quote like William Blake or something in it and then transition quickly into talking about Winter Hill. <laughs> <laughs> well, like if Basically, you, you haven't changed. I, well, okay. I'm more <laughs> self-aware of it, um, but I could totally see the opening scene where they're, where she's singing Hamilton into a shoe. Oh, yeah. I was like, oh my God, my friends and I came up with a Baby Got Back parody about speech team that we would sing all the time. Yeah, and I could see Darcy being completely unamused by that. Did that parody have a name? I mean, it was more of an experience. Let me see if I can remember it. Okay, so it was about extemporaneous speaking. Um, they do mention this in the book, although we don't like see it in competition. I'd love to talk about this more after I do this rap because I think it speaks to the book a little bit. There were a lot of like extemporaneous speakers for other schools that we thought were really cool. And so that is the event where you basically are given a headline uh -huh. And you have to give a speech about it. What you do is you have to bring a giant black box full of middle holders with like news clippings. And then you have 45 minutes to write a speech about it. Basically, we were just talking it out towards that experience, which is now this rap. I like extemp and I cannot lie. You other boys can't deny. When a boy walks in with a big black box and some note cards in your face, you get excited. Because <laughs> you know that box is stuffed with current publications. Oh baby, I wanna get witcha and hear your features. My speech team tries to warn me, but that box you got me so. Yeah, I don't remember what actually was there, but. Uh, so you were singing that into a shoe on a table. Basically, yeah. <laughs> and you can just tell how cool I was <laughs> from that. Yeah. We also would do the very classic, we are speech team, we are great. Watch us as we master speaking. <laughs> So, yeah, this is a lot of firsthand embarrassment. Uh, yeah. Did your mentor grade you on the quality of your puns slash intentionally misrhymes? 
Um, no. Mostly we got judged on how much you flubbed, which I think is like an interesting thing about speech and debate. I don't know what flubbing is. You mix up your words. You're like, like, yeah, which is interesting because Darcy, as it turns out, actually suffers from a stutter and that's why he started doing it. Which, by the way, I thought was a really clever device that she used Mm -hmm. because she wants to put lines from Pride and Prejudice into this text. But obviously you can't speak like you're from 1820 without it sounding weird. Mm-hmm. And so what she's done is she's given Darcy a speech impediment where he needs to rearrange words in a sentence so he could articulate them more clearly. Mm-hmm. And so he sounds like he's from the Regency yeah. period. <laughs> but it's because of his speech impediment so she's found a way to make that work. Yeah, the formalness in which he speaks. Because right. the naturalness can be a little bit more hard for him. So there was a lot of judgment about that as well as Professor Dubuch. Mm-hmm. would say about diction. A lot of advice I got to slow down is probably unsurprising to people mm. who talk to me. And then also accents, making sure that your voice did not have any accents as much as possible. I say in my most Chicago accent mm. that like it's really important to sound as neutral as possible, which is also like we're prioritizing sounding like... Yeah, what is neutral? Right, like, exactly. What is the normal speech? Like what is, what is quote normal speech? Mm-hmm. Is there an accent that you're aiming for there? Or is it just like what, what, like what they sound like on Friends? Yeah, basically okay. do. Do you sound like David Schwimmer? <laughs> okay, good. So that's interesting because my impression of forensics before reading this book, like what I knew of it mostly came from the Topeka School by Ben Leonard. That stressed how quickly arguments are delivered. And then I watched some things on YouTube about people just spitting out arguments at some outrageous rate. And the point was that you needed to create so many arguments that your opponent can't possibly respond to them all and then any dropped argument is an argument conceded and that was my understanding of like the totality of forensic debates but apparently that is not the case like you got the advice that you should slow down rather than speed up well i think that's also speaking to the difference between debate and speech team Mm -hmm. or forensics and i think that's why leela ends up landing on original oratory in the end because it's a mix of the two We're focused on conveying information and making it something that people can internalize and potentially be moved by. Mm. It is a version of acting meets... So humorous interpretation, you're supposed to be able to make people laugh. Like they're supposed to be moved to laughter. Yes. So that's not like trying to convince them that a new social program will lead to nuclear war. Um, Not in humorous interpretation, not generally. (laughs) (laughs) I think what's also interesting is there is sort of an innate classism to which event you are in. Originally, debate is shown as like this higher level one that like, Mm -hmm. oh, speech team is like for people who are like wannabe actors. It's like lower brow than debate. Mm. Because who does debate? All of these private school kids. Right. Which is like the social hierarchy of politics is above being a stand-up comedian. It's a more noble enterprise or it's coded as such. Right. Or how so many men just read nonfiction and refuse to read fiction. Mm. Hashtag not all men, James, obviously. obviously. (laughs) Since we're discussing fiction right now. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that like it is a worthy task because it is more masculine because more men do it. Mm. And that is the definition of like worthiness is where preponderance of men are doing it. Right. So that's why Darcy does that type of debate. Forensics, for me, was a completely different team. Mm. Like, we didn't associate with the debaters. Like, they didn't even go to the same competitions as us. Okay. So this was a unique thing where they're all going to the same invitationals. Usually I wouldn't see something like that. Mm. Invitationals or balls. Balls, yes. 
where they all can socialize and flirt with each other. Yeah. To what extent do you see the race and gender in the original? Obviously, that it's true in Debating Darcy. Do we see it also in Pride and Prejudice, the, the gender stuff? Or was Jane Austen more invested in traditional gender roles? Where a lot of the modern adaptations of Pride and Prejudice get a little bit stuck, or like where they have to think about either gender or sexual politics, happens with Lydia's downfall. Yeah, for sure. This is probably one of the more interesting Lydia plot lines that I've seen. I hate that still today, like over a hundred years after Jane Austen, the plot line of like, how do you ruin a woman or how do you ruin a gay man (laughs) in the Six of Fire Island? His reputation is through sexual exploitation. Mm -hmm. There's something that's like really gross that that is still the way that you ruin someone's reputation that I'm like, wow, we haven't moved on from that. We're 200 years later. Yeah. But this one is interesting because it's actually like Lydia's doing a sting operation. Yeah. (laughs) And she's the one in control the entire time. Which is so similar to the book that we read, The Love Hypothesis, where the proof that the person is a sexual predator is very obvious. There's no believe women. It's like no believe the recording. Mm-hmm. The thing is has been recorded. There's solid proof. There's something strange about that, that like in both cases, in both novels we read, that that had to exist. That there's like unambiguous proof this thing happened. The person says it directly. If you give me this, then you'll get this. But yes, to the point that... 200 years later, we're still talking about the plot device of ruining a woman's reputation. Like, the tension that comes from that in all those cases is sexual exploitation. In Fire Island, I love how the Wickham takedown is ultimately, like, a legally blonde (laughs) takedown. Because it's always, like, how does Darcy rescue Lydia in a way that Lizzie feels indebted? Mm -hmm. So I love the twist in Fire Island where it's like, oh, (laughs) I'm going to legally blonde his ass as a lawyer. Yeah. Because it's fun and it doesn't have to do with money. The money thing is always gross. And so I'm like always glad when they are able to change it from the money piece. What's interesting about this book, which I appreciated, is it's a joint effort between Darcy and Gigi. Mm-hmm. It allows Gigi to regain some power that usually she's a character who's just there to have been exploited. Yeah. And to show like a pattern with Wickham. Um, and to be clear, to pull a legally blonde is to throw out a bunch of law jargon that seems legitimate but is actually kind of flubbed. Yes. I mean, I assume everyone in the world has piped legally blonde into their brain. <laughs> if you haven't seen Legally Blonde the musical, I'd recommend it. There's a full recorded version of it with Christian Borle and Laura Bell Bundy that you can find on YouTube. Yeah. And so it's... Uh, <laughs> Sorry. It's nice, it's nice that in Fire Island and in Debating Darcy, the trick is not just Darcy throwing his money around and so this idea that like money can solve the problems, but that there's actually like a cleverness or like a legal or legitimate way that they can navigate saving Lydia. Yeah. The Lydia character. Speaking of Lydia and the sister characters in all of these cases, one thing that I'm always struck by is this really simple trick that Jane Austen does to get us to sympathize with the protagonist, the Elizabeth Bennet character. She creates just an insane group of people around the Elizabeth Bennet character. And so they're all caricatures. And so that you can't really sympathize with any of them. Like, even even a character like Bingley, who's just, like, gentle and kind or whatever, he's so extreme in that characterization that he becomes a caricature. And obviously in the original Pride and Prejudice, the parents are caricatures. In Debating Darcy, from the first chapter, Mary is a complete disaster. <laughs> um, the captain of the team, Colin, is super formal. And so you get all these characters that are completely unrelatable. They're entertaining, but they're unrelatable. Like, you're never going to be like, I see myself 
yourself in Mary. I see myself okay. in Mary. <laughs> so you, okay. Like like a no fun goth chick. Yeah, no. I, I get that. I like the vibe. I mean, I know <laughs> the caricature that is the Mary character, and I get that vibe, and I like that vibe. But I'm not gonna be like. I read Mary and immediately saw myself in Mary. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas Elizabeth Bennet, I think everybody reads it and you think like, yeah, I'm Elizabeth Bennet, I'm Leela. And it's partly because you see from her point of view, you sympathize with her, everybody else around her is a, is a complete caricature. So then your biases become her biases. That's why you're entrapped. That's the effectiveness of Jane Austen's reader entrapment and the effectiveness of this reader entrapment where you think Darcy's an asshole until you come around. But actually, before, when we've talked about this, you, you made what I think is the right point, that Darcy is, in fact, an asshole. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just that we have a bias against him because he said that we're not hot, um, if we're taking the point of view yeah. of Elizabeth Bennet. It's that he's actually an asshole. Well, yeah, I mean, in Fire Island, they play this down a little bit more. Although, I think Darcy is an asshole, but also exactly what you're saying, all of... Lizzie Bennett's friends in every adaptation are hot messes. Mm -hmm. Like when we are watching Fire Island, like his friends are puking into vases. Yeah. <laughs> and eating all the cheese in the hot tub. And like can't stop dancing. Yeah. It's like same things that are happening with the speech team here. Like crazy shit is happening. We're yeah. like Colin is fake proposing, but not actually proposing to Leela. And they're singing into shoes yeah. and like they're already like doing all these schemes. And Mary's just like crying to yeah. the heavens about how her life is ruined. Yeah. So there's always that point in the confession of love mm -hmm. where they're like, I've tried not to feel this way because your friends and family are freaking mess, but mm. I like adore you. I love you. Yeah. That's an asshole thing to say. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it's not a good one. And in Pride and Prejudice, it's more based in class than these other mm -hmm. things where he's saying like, I didn't want to like you because you're lower class. And these other ones, it's like, I didn't want to like you because your friends are disasters. Well, but I think that those are equivalent in Jane Austen's novel, right? Yeah. Like being lower class and also... I think that they, like, end up being, like, a little bit more, like, ragamuffin-y at the ball. Mm -hmm. But, yes, it's an equivalent of, yeah. I am better than you, but I'm in love with you. Yeah, yeah. and this, this trick of the caricature in order to force the reader into a bias for the protagonist is also, like, something that happens in Harry Potter. Like, the first Harry Potter, all of the people that you encounter are disasters, except for Harry, and so your biases just automatically go with Harry. So it's not like a gothic novel where... Everybody is so deeply flawed that you're like, everybody's a mess. Withering Heights, for example. Like, everybody's broken and they're just trying to, to figure it out. This one is like, no, there's one character that's not broken. And there's one character that you can, like, deeply sympathize with in this sea of nonsense. And then you go from there. And one thing that's interesting about Pride and Prejudice and Debating Darcy in Fire Island is that the Leela character will always do a positive reading and, like, be sympathetic towards the Jishnu character what I mean by that is like we'll always do positive readings of, of that character and we'll always do negative readings of the Darcy character and so like even though there's red flags for both of them even though there's reasons to be sympathetic towards both of them she makes a conscious decision to be sympathetic towards Jishnu and be hostile to Darcy and the only thing that I could think of that, that is a reason for why she does positive readings of one and negative readings of the other one is ego-based that she mm -hmm. hears in all of the cases darcy say oh he's not that hot or she's not that hot sorry i was thinking about fire island i mean 
someone's not hot. Yeah. It's up to tempt Darcy. <laughs> yeah, to tempt Darcy. And that there's, like, a blow to the ego right away. And so, therefore, like, she's flattered when she hears the Jishnu character like her and is insulted when she hears that the Darcy character doesn't like her. And that biases all of her readings of all of their actions from that point on so that she's sympathetic towards the guy who thinks she's hot and pissed at the guy who thinks she's not hot. What a very foreign thing that no one has ever felt before. (laughs) (laughs) No, exactly what you're saying. Yeah, it's like a a character that you can see yourself in. Mm -hmm. I think in comparison to like other pieces of literature like Wuthering Heights, part of like the archetypal nature of like the side characters is very much because it is a comedy. It's ultimately a comedy. All of these are comedies where they end up together at the end. In Prime Pride, just two couples end up in the end. Mm -hmm. Who do you think is right about Hamilton, Darcy or Leela? That is a really interesting debate about people of color just telling white stories, arguments that Darcy makes. I mean, I'm, I'm a bad person for this debate because, you know, I'm a white dude. But generally the way I fall on that debate is if the art is dope, then the art is dope. Like, <laughs> and in this case, Hamilton is just like a great work of art. And so many people realize that you could do close readings of works of art through Hamilton. Like it was a real moment where people were awakened to the power of what good art can do. And like that some art is just better and like better crafted than other art. Um, and so like obviously Darcy has a good point, but like I'm looking forward to the art that Darcy's going to produce. Like, totally. That, that just more, more of it and in more spaces. I have complicated feelings about things like Hamilton because ultimately it's a play or a musical with a bunch of people of color Mm -hmm. that are playing towards a bunch of like clapping white people Mm -hmm. who it allows them to feel better about themselves and they but they've also paid like four hundred dollars a ticket or something Mm -hmm. for the privilege of seeing these people of color perform. There's like a weird classes divide there, but also it's employing people of color. Yeah. And it's sharing their stories and putting them in positions of artistic power. And have lifted a lot of them to household names. Exactly. Leslie Odem Jr., Philippe Sou, like, mm-hmm. now those people, whatever they do next, is going to have an audience, and so yeah. it's like, it's it's given them a path, it's a stepping stone towards something that is really positive. Yeah, and I think ultimately, like, it is aware of, to a certain extent, different privileges within Hamilton, obviously, mm-hmm. and him versus Burr is like a very classic sort of example that you get to see played out over time. Yeah. And the art is incredible. Like, anytime you're able to have symbols that evolve over time and reprises that that show up over time, you can respect the craft and say, like, this is a great work of art and also have those conversations around it being a social good or the social narratives that it's promoting or projecting. And then there's the economic side of it being able to employ people of color and to lift their voices up for whatever they do next. Like all of these things are all true at the same time. And to value one of those elements over one of the other ones, I think is probably like, they all need to be considered at the same time. So I think that Leela in this case has a more complex view of it, but I really appreciated that this appeared in this novel. Like this is a YA novel directed at young high school students. And it's having a really complicated discussion of appropriation, what constitutes a white story versus lifting the voices of oppressed peoples. And, and I thought it was nuanced because Darcy brings a nuanced interpretation or a nuanced perspective on that issue and she's able to like recognize it steel man it understand it and then have a separate argument that is also valid yeah because especially with debate it's you don't know which side you're gonna have to argue Mm -hmm. what they emphasize is like you can find a truth a path forward in either side of the debate like i thought it was very interesting for a lot of the debates like leela 
would find her way to like argue something she didn't quite believe in, mm-hmm. but find the truth in that piece yeah. of like, yes, I can actually argue this. I thought it was really interesting when they were debating school choice that they both were able to bring up really good arguments on both sides. Right. I mean, especially like you and I both work in education yeah. and there are arguments on both sides. If you are pulling kids out of public schools, those schools are going to have less resources. Mm-hmm. They get less tax dollars that will afford them to have smaller class sizes and more resources like bed teachers and things like that. Then there's also what Darcy's point is, which is for a student who's struggling, such as Darcy, the current system that we have in place is not going to be fixed fast enough for him to get the interventions that he needs. Mm-hmm. And as a parent, what do you do in that situation? Yeah, and both sides are true. Like both of them are true at the same time. And this book, I think, did a really good job of not watering down those debates and like letting them be complicated. And then the moral of the whole book or the way that all the symbols and plot lines are oriented is in the direction of finding your own voice within that noise. Mm-hmm. And that, that there's going to be a lot of arguments. There's like multiple ways of having valid perspectives on certain complicated issues and then navigating them so that you find your own personal voice and way forward within those things. Or like in the argument that they had about um, college admissions and SAT and ACT not coming down on like whether or not the ACT, SAT is like elitist in many ways it obviously is, but so is college. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so to an extent, like true liberatory design is eliminating yeah. all of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Eliminating, right. Like it's yeah. no more like elitist than college itself. Right. So she's able to find the truth within these complicated arguments and say like, it is possible to be against this or it is possible to be for this. And there's a like hot take response, but then there's the, okay, what if I'm forced to think about it from the other direction? You can still find a sympathetic reading of it. And I really liked the way this book did that kind of thing where like that idea that there are going to be a pro and a con. It's like you're forced into a situation as we often are to see things in black and white, pro con, this is good, this is bad. And that there's obviously going to be a lot of gray within that. So you can look at it from a pro or con perspective, either one, and still find an element of truth or like find something you believe in within that context. And I think a lot of this book was oriented in that direction, like Jishnu and Darcy, like they both have red flags. They both have. And so you can like find a way to like either of them at different points in the novel. Mm hmm. This is a very quick transition, but I really like the way this character did Lydia. You mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. that you appreciated that too, but I was like totally down with Lydia from the very first chapters. I was like, this one has the like passion and fearlessness that Leela lacks. Mm -hmm. And there was something really nice about that. And there was like real sympathetic moments. Like when Leela's like, you know what? This type of forensics is sexist. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to perform anyway. And I'm going to try it. And I'm going to be brave and I'm going to do it. And Lydia, who's much younger, I think it's, she's described as like clenching her fists. And she's like, I'll do it too. And it's like, even though she's much younger and much less confident and much less able and knows she's going to get rocked, she's still like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to show up. Yeah. And also like show up in a ultimately better way than Leela does because she yeah. conducts a sting operation. Right, right, right. <laughs> Yeah, rather than go in there and say, like, this thing is sexist, I know I'm going to take some punches. She goes in there and says, I know this thing is sexist, I know I'm going to take some punches, and I'm going to throw some punches. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not going to, like, just take it because it's something that I am expecting, and so I'm going to endure it. She hits back. 
Uh, she was a great character in this one. Yeah. Much more charismatic than the one in Fire Island, the Lydia character in Fire Island, or really any other Lydia character I've ever seen. Her level of confidence and, like, badassery is probably the best Lydia that I've read right. or seen. It's transformed this naive element that the Lydia character always has, this, like, young, doesn't really know what's going on, sort of naive. It, like, took that and saw that as a source of power. Whereas Leela, it has this maturity to her where she understands the system and then it's like, the system is something I need to endure. Lydia is naive enough that when Lydia goes into this... She sees the system and is like, I'm going to burn that down. It's like one of those where the system is so entrenched that the only people who can actually make a change are the ones who are naive enough to think that they can make a change. And so it like sees Lydia's naivety as a source of power. Mm-hmm. Versus like leaning in. Yeah. Or just like being a victim. Yeah. Okay, so I think that now we're ready to do the part of the show when we pick an IB paper two question and we try to answer it with the text that we read. And I feel like... And watched. And watched. And I feel like this one's going to be really easy because these uh, were not really easy. I think this (laughs) one is going to be easy for us to pick the texts that we're going to compare Debating Darcy to because we have Pride and Prejudice, Debating Darcy, Bridget Jones' Diary if we want, Fire Island, and a whole bunch of other texts that are all very related and will be fun to compare how they take essentially the same storyline and Mm -hmm. do something very different with it. So, the question that I picked out, completely randomly. Completely? (laughs) totally randomly. Wow. Is how far and in what ways do writers present issues of self-awareness and or self-deception in two or three novels or short stories that we have studied? We've studied a lot. And we've studied a lot. We've read a lot of adaptations of Pride and Prejudice. Going back to what you're talking about, about the Lizzie character always having to be like, do I believe Wickham or do I believe Mm -hmm. Darcy? I feel like that is like the classic example of she's deceiving herself because of her ego, exactly what you said. And it's your your first sign that you can't necessarily trust her as a narrator 100% or even like the close third person on her. And I think the other one that I liked that they did early in debating Darcy is when Colin is asking for help on how to ask out Leela's best friend. And Leela is like, oh my god, he's in love with me. (laughs) (laughs) And is like, totally wrong. Yeah. It's a pretty classic ego. Like, she sees herself as the most mature person in the room, and so she fully trusts herself as an arbiter of goodness in all of these cases. It, like, never crosses her mind that she might be wrong, even though trusted allies of hers within the story are saying, like, maybe you're not exactly reading this right, or, like, maybe there's something to, like, there's something about this that isn't making sense. She's, like, fully confident in her own ability to adjudicate between different moral actors in in the story. It's only at the end that she becomes self-aware, and her self-awareness is basically that she can't trust herself. All of the characters in all of these different adaptations, at the end, the Elizabeth Bennet character has to say, I am not good at understanding what's going on, and admitting that that is self-awareness, that their self-awareness was completely confident and then was called into question. But there's something interesting about, like, in Fire Island... Joel Kimbuster is very confident in Fire Island. Right. His pathway to self-actualization is an understanding that people want different things in this world. It's obviously a queer reading of Pride and Prejudice. And what's good about that is that the, the moral of that trajectory of the Elizabeth Bennet character is one where 
the main character is forced to queer one's understanding of relationships. And so that Elizabeth Bennet protagonist at the beginning thinks like, no, the point is to assert yourself, be confident, and then have lots of sex. And uh, the thing that he learns throughout that is actually, like, maybe I read that wrong. Maybe that's not the point. Maybe that can be the point for me at a specific time in my life, but it's not for my best friend, for the for the Jane character, for the Jay character from Debating Darcy, where that character just fundamentally wants something different, and so he needs to recognize that not everybody wants the thing that he has or can act the way that he acts um, or have the, in the case of Fire Island, the body privileges. And I think that, that Debating Darcy also did a really good job of adapting this for a different kind of narrative moral like the one in Pride and Prejudice is very different than the one debating Darcy where her purpose is to find her voice and part of finding her voice is I need to recognize that I was wrong and that maybe I shouldn't be parroting what you know the expectations of other people or I shouldn't be using the voice of other people I should find my own trust it in a different way trusting that she can be confident enough to say I don't know what's going on in this situation yeah, which I feel like as a teenager, I also had to learn. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's it's a really good YA yeah. trajectory. I think Fire Island's ending is very interesting to me. I haven't fully unpacked it. Um, but what's interesting to me about it is there's a self-deception piece where Joel Kim Booster's character is like, oh, wait, like maybe I, I do like dancing with this guy in the dock. Yeah. <laughs> like maybe I don't just like want to have all the random sex in the world and in my super hot body but both darcy and lizzie in the scenario agree that monogamy isn't for them before they hook up and i can't tell if the reading of that is in another layer of self-deception hmm. where they're both still throwing up a wall mm-hmm. or is it saying like you can find people that meet your needs right. if you're able to fully articulate them that there are people out there that can meet them yeah, my reading of it, maybe I just saw it last night, I haven't really processed it, is simply that it was like broadening the behavior space of what a relationship can look like. And that's a really good layer to put on top of the Pride and Prejudice narrative if you're doing a queer interpretation of it. The purpose is therefore to broaden the behavior space and to say like, okay, we've been, as is said many times in, in the movie, that there's the monogamous industrial complex or whatever, and everybody's being forced into these assumptions that monogamy is the best path forward. And I, I, yeah, I've listened to your TED Talk line. <laughs> um, throughout that trajectory of this narrative, you're broadening what is possible. So you're you're accepting that for some people, monogamy is the right answer, and like, or is the path towards self-actualization or self-fulfillment and for other people it's not going to be and that that's fine like except that there's multiple behavior spaces for these things to exist in and that debating darcy was able to take the same exact narrative structure and put a really good ya spin on it about recognizing that your beliefs aren't necessarily the beliefs of everybody that your beliefs necessarily aren't right and that you need to find your own voice in a world that is going to present itself as black and white moralistically to you, but that it's never going to be like that, and that everything is going to be more complicated than it should be. Like, these are really, I think, both effective at using the narrative structure of Pride and Prejudice, but adapting it to the genre in one a queer reading and one a YA reading. 
And of course, we can't forget the ultimate version of a Lizzie character having an assumption that it's broken, which is at the very end of Richardson's diary, when they're kissing in the snow and she pulls back and says, nice boys don't kiss like that. And then Darcy says, oh, yes, they fucking do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that, uh, I don't know, what genre is Bridget Jones's diary? Is it just like chick flick? Is that the genre? Is that flick, term canceled? Flick. I think we canceled it. Okay. It's like just like chiclet. It's rom-com? I think just classic rom com. Okay, it's a classic rom com, and so the 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 sort of like moral layer on top of the narrative layer is that nice guys do kiss passionately. <laughs> I think. <laughs> I think in in all ways, like it's like what your actual needs are are yeah. different what you than your wants or yeah. like what you think that uh, you should. So it's like want. a want and need. Yeah. Narrative, yeah. And again, like, you're making assumptions about what you want or need, and I think in all of these, it's like, they speak to it in Fire Island of, like, a layer of vulnerability that you need to have with yourself and with others. I'll be real with you, I never saw Bridget Jones' Diary. Are you freaking kidding me? I've never seen it. Wait, and I just spoiled the ending for you. I, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, spoiler alert, Colin first a great kisser. The other one we didn't talk about is Lizzie Bennet Diaries. Oh my god, I loved Lizzie Bennet Diaries. Which is a great adaptation into genre. Yeah. Is it unique? Like, has anybody ever done anything like that before? Not to that level. It was, like, true cross-media yeah. sensation. Right. Lizzie Bennet Diaries, for those of you who don't know, was a YouTube vlogging series that had Lizzie Bennet just be a vlogger and vlog her experience through this narrative, mm-hmm. which was super interesting, especially because it happened, like, oh, like 2010. Yeah, like, yeah. that was when vlogging... Like, Casey Neistat was still in the nation period. Like, that's really early. They're, I would say, most well-known for having the best interpretation of the Bing Lee character by naming him Bing Lee, first name, last name. (laughs) (laughs) So good. So good. I think also what's interesting with the Lizzie Bennett Diaries, back to the IB question of self-awareness and self-deception, is because of the vlogging format, Mm -hmm. It was like always like from Lizzie's perspective, and it was her recounting stories where she'd like get into character and write scripts for her and her sister and mm-hmm. friends to like read out of like what happened. Sometimes it was a little bit forced, yeah. but they had to create ways to show that Lizzie was an unreliable narrator, where her sister would take over the vlog and be like, "This is actually what happened." <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. The Lydia character started her own vlog to be like, "There's other things happening here," or when you finally meet Darcy. And you're like, has he actually ever worn this hat that you <laughs> keep on <laughs> insisting that he wore? That he wore it once. <laughs> yeah. So if we were writing about this, I think our thesis statement would have something to say about genre and self-deception. And the way that this particular narrative structure of self-deception is leveraged in order to create different themes or in order to explore different themes from multiple different angles, depending on genre. That would be a really interesting thesis. Now, you like take the three genres... YA, queer interpretation, YouTube vlogging, or whatever, and then explore the ways that each of those genres impacted the way that the narrative of self-deception plays itself out. Mm-hmm. That'd yeah. be interesting. Well, I think that wraps this one up. So we need to pick a book for next month. What do we want to read? I mean, I think I'm, I keep on returning to this idea of like, what does self-deception look like and how do you uncover it as a reader? And I feel like there's been a really big trend in YA, so so much like vlogging and different people having a vlog, it's like, what do you do with dual perspectives? How does that play out and help tell the story? I don't know if we've done a dual perspective novel. Well, do you have anything in mind for that? Anything that fits those? Well, if we want to stay on the 
Rami Kami. I do, I do. Kind of bent. She gets the girl by Rachel Lippincott, and her wife, Allison Derrick, has a lot of similar elements as uh, what we read. It's apparently She's All That meets What If It's Us. Perfect. This sounds great. Let's do Absolutely. it. <laughs> we'll do it. This has been Literary Connections, hosted by me, James Earl, and Melissa Hansen, and we're produced by Kimberly Johnson. You can follow us on Twitter at lit underscore connections. Join us next month when we'll be reading She Gets the Girl by Rachel Lippincott and Allison Derrick. See you there. See you then. That's how it is on this episode of the podcast. Uh, That's Walter Cronkite. (laughs)